and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear friends in Christ Jesus, you who are present and you especially boys and girls of the confirmation class, I hope that all of us are glad that we are here in God's house this evening. It's been a rather blustery day, hasn't it? The wind has blown strong. It would have been an easy night to have stayed home. And yet, there's something about this night that calls your soul and mine to church. Isn't that right? Today is called Monday Thursday, and so often I'm asked the question, what does that mean? Why do we call it Monday Thursday? In fact, in the Christian church, it's been called Monday Thursday for so many generations that we just aren't quite sure why it is called Monday Thursday. The best explanation we have is this, that the word Monday comes from the Latin word mandatum, or we get an English word from it, the English word mandate. The best explanation we have is that from earliest times in the Christian church, uh, this Thursday before Good Friday was called Monday Thursday because on this night centuries ago in the upper room, uh, Jesus gave a new mandatum, a new mandate to his disciples when in the upper room, you remember he told them, he said, little children love one another as I have loved you, love one another. And so we feel that a new mandate, a new law of love, to love as Jesus' love was given on this night centuries ago, and that's why it's called Mandate or Monday Thursday. I say it's nice to be here tonight, to come into God's house, and we are in the Lenten season, and it's just about over, isn't it? This is Holy Week. And in the Lenten season this year, we've been talking about some of the disturbing questions that were asked in the story of Jesus' sufferings and death. Tonight we have the second last one that we're going to consider. After Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, had sentenced Jesus to death and therefore ordered him to be crucified, we know that he carried his own cross. He went down the Via Dolorosa, the way of Styros. He went under with the cross, and we know that help came from Simon of Cyrene who helped carry it. They went out the north gate, and they came to Calvary, the place of the skull, and I recall standing there one day, and there is something holy about that ground, and there they crucified him, as you know, and two others were crucified with him. They were two murderers, they were two malefactors, and there was the one on the right of Jesus and the other on the left. They remain again immortal in the word of God, we speak of them. And yet they are unnamed. And yet in the Christian church, as so often happens, by tradition they were given names, although they're not mentioned in the Word of God. The one that we are vitally concerned about tonight is the malefactor on the right. He's not named in Scripture, but tradition gives him the name of Dismas. And the one on the left, tradition calls him Gizmas. But we are interested in these two malefactors. And as the three of them were nailed to their separate crosses, the first word that came from Jesus was, Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they do. And then we are told that there was a lot of mockery at the cross because the cross was near the city and there still is a highway that goes right by Golgotha. If you have been in Jerusalem, you will remember that road. And so they stood there and they mocked Jesus. As we turn to the record of Christ as regards his clothing, we aren't too sure that what Jesus was on the cross without any clothes on at all. It was part of the shame and part of the disgrace. And then these two murderers, the one on the right and the one on the left, they joined in the mockery and they were ridiculing him and they were jeering him. We would say they were needling him. And they were saying to him, both of them, if you are the Christ, come on down from the cross. And then something happened, friends, that you and I, as we stand at the cross and we listen tonight, we say to ourselves, what in the world happened? This man, Dismas, on the right, who had been mocking and deriding and ridiculing Jesus, he stops. He stops. And then he turns and he wants to talk to his buddy over on the left cross. And then he asks this question of him. He says, Dost not thou fear God? Seeing thou art in the same condemnation, he says, Aren't you afraid of God? Seeing that we're dying like the man on the center cross, and then he says, And we're dying because we deserve it, but not this man. You and I stand there and we're rather aghast, aren't we? We say, What in the world happened? Word of God tells us that both of them were deriding Jesus and needling him. And then something happens and this man, Dismas, he stops. And then he turns to Jesus and he has something to say to him. But we say, what about some of these disturbing questions that come to your mind and mine as we stand at Calvary tonight and we hear this man on the right saying, aren't you afraid of God? And you and I ask the same question, don't we? Why is it that there are some men who are not afraid of God and then there are others who are? How many people do you know in your life who aren't afraid of God? They don't care what they say about God. They don't care how they needle the name of God, how they laugh at him, how they ridicule him, how they mock him, how again they jeer at him. And you and I, when we hear it, we just simply have cold chills go up and down our spine, don't we? We say, how in the world can a mortal man stand and not be afraid of God? Not be afraid that when he turns and needles God, that God doesn't strike him dead on the spot. And yet we stand at the cross, and here was Dismas. He had been deriding and jeering and then he suddenly wonders, how can you do it over there on the other cross? Aren't you afraid of God? You and I say, how does it come that some people are? They don't care what they say about God. They don't care how they blaspheme him. They don't care how they deride him. They don't care what horrible things they say about him. They aren't afraid. And we say, why? 
The only answer we can come up with is this. They choose to do just that. And we know this, that whenever a man chooses to deride God, and when he chooses to mock him and to blaspheme him, that every time he does it, something takes place within his own soul. He starts to harden his heart. And every blasphemy that comes from his lips hardens that heart and drives the Holy Spirit away to the point that that man gets to the place where he doesn't care. It doesn't bother him. He kills his conscience. He hardens his heart. He goes on the road on which there is no turning back the sin against the Holy Ghost. We say to ourselves, how can any man choose to blaspheme God and to keep it up and to laugh and to ridicule and not care? The man on the left did. He died and he sinned. That man on the left of Jesus died with blasphemy, with mockery and with ridicule from his mouth to the last moment. You and I say... How can a man do it? It's a hard question, isn't it? The mysteries in man. What happened to this man on the right? How does it come he stopped? He chose to stop, didn't he? You and I stand at the cross and we say, it's a mystery in a man. Why one man chooses to die in his sin and another man who had been voicing the same mockery and becomes afraid of God. What a mystery we find in human beings. And oh, that brings another question, doesn't it, that bothers. Why is it that one man repents and another man doesn't? They both heard Jesus say, as regards those who nail him to the cross, Father, forgive them. Well, they don't realize the enormity of their sin. They both heard that. What was it that caused business on the right to stop in his mockery and the man on the left, he simply died in his sin? What caused this malefactor on the right to repent? Oh, you and I may say, oh, he was scared to die. You may say, oh, again, he, he was just straining at a gnat or reaching for that proverbial straw. But I'll have you know, friend, this was a genuine repentance or it never be recorded in the Word of God and what happened. Here was a man, you and I say, what a mysterious thing. When he turned to the malefactor on the left and he said, don't you fear God? Seeing we are in the same condemnation as this man in the center, and we deserve what is coming to us, but this man doesn't. Did you ever hear a, a nicer confession of sin than that kind of a confession? This man on the right, he was saying, what I've got coming, I deserve. And this man was referring more to just dying on the cross. As we see as the story continues, he was thinking about life after death. He was a Jew. All three of them were Jews. There was repentance. And you may say, well, what's the essence of a genuine repentance? 
This man over on the left, he died in his sin, and this malefactor, he died to sin that night. There was a change in that man. He was telling Jesus, I am a lost sinner, and I deserve what's coming. There was a sorrow. Had that man lived, you would have seen a changed life. He died to sin that day on the cross. There would have been a change. There would have been no deliberate sin. What is the essence of repentance in your life and mine? It's this, isn't it, that we're sorry enough that we say, I'm stopping doing what I know is wrong. I am stopping willful sin. I am stopping deliberate sin. I'm sorry enough to quit. That's Real repentance. And you had it here on the part of business. On the cross. On that good Friday. You and I say, well, why is it that this man really repented? He died to sin on the cross. He was done with it. Had he lived, what a different life than this man? He didn't. Rather mysterious, isn't it? They both heard Jesus speak. And all that we can say is, what a mystery in some of us. Why is it this man chooses to repent and this man doesn't? All we can say is, it's hard to give a reasonable answer for the unreasonable acts of men. We say the most ridiculous thing in the world is for a man not to repent, but this man didn't. He didn't choose. To repent. That brings up another thing that bothers us as we watch these two malefactors and we wonder they both started mocking and needling Jesus. And this one over here stops and we say, why is it that some men come to faith in Jesus Christ and others don't? They both saw the Master crucified. They both heard his prayer. This one, he stops mocking, and then he turns to Jesus, and he says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Oh, will you please remember me? Will you please remember me? And I wonder if any of us can ever feel the tragedy of that man's heart when he reached out and he called for mercy. Lord, Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? That man saw something that day on Calvary. He saw this man on the center as the Messiah, as the Christ. This Jew, I wonder what kind of a mother he had. He must have had a mother who told him something about the Messiah and the Jewish hope. And probably the other one did too because they were waiting for him. But he turns to this Jesus. Will you remember me? Talk about a faith. He put himself into the hands of Jesus. Will you remember me on your right when you come into your kingdom? This was a childlike faith and trust in Jesus genuinely. But you and I say, how does it come? The other man didn't do it. Why just business? 
business chose to do it. Why the other one didn't, it's a mysterious thing. When you preach the word of God, every minister stands and he wonders why the mysterious reactions to Jesus Christ. Why is it that the same sermon preached at the same time can bring one man to repentance, to put in his faith in Christ, and another man goes on blaspheming, mocking, ridiculing, needling, laughing, scorning. It's a mystery in man, isn't it? We say, how can you give a reasonable explanation for, again, a ridiculous reaction that a man would keep on in his mockery to the Son of God? These are things that bother us, isn't that right? Then we say, why is it that some men are saved and other men are lost? And then it was, you know, that Jesus turned to this business on the right and I've often thought he must have smiled when he turned to him and he looked down. It must have been an excruciating agony to twist on the cross. And he says to this man today, shalt thou be with me in paradise. You know, it's rather amazing how those words have been twisted out of context. Depending upon what a man wants when he hears these words, there are those who, who want to say that when we die, the soul dies, and so does the body, and that we bury both body and soul. And then they come up against these words of Jesus, and they try to manipulate them a little, and they try to tell us that what Jesus says was, and then Jesus said today, or on that day Jesus said, you're going to be with me in paradise. And of course the answer is, what other day would he have said it if it wasn't that day? If today was not part of the direct discourse of Jesus, if you've got to mutilate the word, then he wouldn't have said it yesterday and he wouldn't have said it tomorrow. What other day would he have said it than that day? But you see, if you want to have soul and body both die and be buried, then you've got to get rid of the word today. And then there are those that say, well... If he did say, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise, may say, Where did he go when he died on the cross? Well, he went to paradise, and so there are those that say, Well, paradise, uh, that's supposed to be another word for the grave. Yet I'm sure if I ask you children, Does the grave sound like a paradise? Did God ever call the grave a paradise? And you'd say no. And if I ask you kids, what does paradise remind you of? You'd tell me the Garden of Eden, wouldn't you? Because it was called paradise. You don't have to be a theologian sometimes. All you have to be is a child and take the word of God. What did Jesus say? When he turned to this man on the right, he said, Today, malefactor, you're going to be with me in paradise. In what? In the Edenic bliss of heaven. What else could it mean? Where did he go with that malefactor at three o'clock that afternoon? When he also prayed, Jesus said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. When he put again his spirit in the arms of his heavenly Father, and he in that malefactor in soul went to paradise, they 
went to heaven, the soul doesn't go to the grave. The soul goes to heaven. The body goes to the grave. And we say, why is it? Here was a man on the left. Here's a man on the right. Why is it in God's name they both started out mocking and needling? What in the world happens in a man? that one man stops and he turns in sincere repentance and faith and one man is saved and another man who hears the very same gracious words is lost. We say, why? What is it? All the mystery in a human being, the mystery of a human being in hearing the word of God. And as I preach it tonight, the mystery of a man's reaction. Oh, again, when we say, why? I don't know why a man chooses to die in his sin and another man chooses to die to sin and to turn to Jesus Christ. Oh, what mysterious beings you and I really are. Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation this man said on the right? We say, oh, what, what troublesome questions, and all oh, these things bother us, and uh, we say, what about it? And then we may say to ourselves, is there really such a thing as an eleventh-hour conversion? We like to refer to this as an eleventh hour, don't we? Jesus talks about the eleventh hour. We say, well, what about the eleventh hour? The eleventh hour is the last hour before midnight when everything is over. Then we say, when you get to eleven o'clock, is there really such a thing as an eleventh hour turning to Jesus Christ? Is there such a thing as a deathbed conversion? You know, the reason you and I ask it, let's be honest, we get a little bit jealous, don't we? How many times have you said it or have I said it? When you've seen somebody who has just simply spent his life, most of it from A to Z, out in the world and drinking in every immorality and everything the world's got to offer, and then comes the eleventh hour of the deathbed, and he turns to Jesus Christ. Didn't it nag you? Didn't you say, it isn't fair? Why should a man be able to have his cake and eat it too? I've had many a man say to me, if that's the way I live, the way so-and-so did for all those years, I'd be man enough to die that way. I wouldn't be a coward. And on my deathbed, turn to Jesus Christ if I couldn't have done it before. We're rather envious, aren't we? Isn't that rather strange? Rather strange that as Christians we envy the man who again, like the malefactor, spends his time in murdering and then in the last moments of life turns to Jesus Christ. Have you ever realized the pangs in that man's heart? 
Did you ever talk to somebody who, when the deathbed came in the eleventh hour and they turned to Jesus Christ, did you ever see the agony of soul? Did you ever have anybody say, oh, it's been grand all the way? Did you ever have anybody say, but oh, I've lived with it every day of my life and I've disgraced myself and it's horrible? Did you ever see anybody gloat over that kind of a line? I've had person after person say to me, but you live with it and you never get over it. And listen, I imagine at the cross had you and I been there, and when this malefactor seen what a life was, and he turned, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Talk about an anguished soul. I can imagine that man saying to himself, Oh, he hasn't any room for you in his kingdom. You've been a dirty murderer and a dirty robber. Don't dare ask him. And against it all, he says, Lord, will you remember me? Will you please talk about an agonizing soul that man had? I'd like to just tell you this. When I stand at deathbeds of individuals who have mocked and who have ridiculed, and they turn to Jesus Christ, I've never seen one yet glowed over the past. But I've seen them in agony hold my hand and say, Do you think he can forgive? Do you think he'll save? Do you think he's got room for me? Do you think that he might save me? I'd just like to mention that tonight. Don't ever gloat or don't ever be envious over again, the man in the eleventh hour. But will you just remember this? It's grace at its best. Don't ever gloat or don't ever be envious. This is grace. If it wasn't for the fact that Jesus would save the eleventh hour, man, there'd be no salvation for you and me either. It's all a gift, isn't it? You see, he died. He died for the malefactors, too. He died for the eleventh hour converts. Oh, they're miserable oh, when they turn to Christ because they're afraid that he'll reject them. Don't envy them from tonight on. You pray for them. Thank God, is there such a thing as an eleventh hour? Oh, yes, there is. Here's one. And then it brings up this nagging question. Well, then perhaps it would be all right if we wait. Let's be rather presumptuous and let's wait a little longer. Let's go out and live to the world a little longer. And then after we've lived and we've drunk it in from A to Z and run the gamut of sin, then uh, wouldn't it be all right then to come? But oh, I'd like to answer that question by telling you, if you start in at Genesis, come all the way through the Old Testament, Come all the way through the new, down to the last word in the last verse of the book of Revelation. You'll come up with this. There's only one case of an eleventh hour conversion in the entire word of God. Just one. And it was business on the right. And if that says anything to you and me tonight, it says this. Don't presume and don't wait. It's possible, yes. But again, it's very rare. You see, it may only be fear. It may only be reaching out and grabbing for that straw. 
There may not be a death to sin. I have been at many a sickbed where the person thought he was dying. Just this week I had a person say to me, because he thinks he's dying, if I live, Reverend, you can rest assured, I'll be back in church. I wished I could tell you the number of times I have had people who thought they were dying tell me, I'll be back in church. And the number of times they have said, you see us more in the hospital than we ever see you in church. And you know, it's rather tragic and strange when God lets them live so often they're there one Sunday and gone again until I meet him at the hospital. You see, it's rather rare. But oh, it can happen, and it did happen. And so when we ask this question tonight, is it too late in my life, even though this is the eleventh hour, and Jesus Christ as he's on the Santa Cross, he assures you and me, it's never too late if you and I don't want to die in our sin, but we want to die to sin. This may be your eleventh hour and mine. Maybe the next time the clock strikes, it's going to be midnight, and it'll all be over. But Jesus says, it's, it's not too late if again, if you can say to me, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. This is a rather sacred night. It's Monday, Thursday, and it's the day of the new mandate, but also it was on this night, centuries ago in the upper room, that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And I know that's what brought many of you to church tonight, because... This is a sacred evening when he was with his disciples in the upper room. And he took bread and wine and he blessed them and he gave the bread and wine to his disciples. And he said, take eat, this is my body. And he said, take drink, this is my blood. He instituted it and he said, this do it as often as you think it in remembrance of me. Until the end of the world, this is the sacrament which was instituted this night centuries ago that's going to be repeated until Jesus comes again. But it's a wonderful thing, isn't it, in this sacrament that Jesus says, by means of lowly bread and wine, I give you my body and I give you my blood. That body and that blood which was given and shed on the cross, which has brought forgiveness, deliverance from hell and eternal life for the world. And Jesus says, tonight I give you my body and blood. I don't care who you are or who I am. If I can come to that altar tonight with this as a repentant sinner that in this eleventh hour I am dying to sin that when I stand at that altar tonight that it means as I'm done with deliberate sinning like the malefactor. I'm through with persisting in that which I know is wrong. And I am putting my faith in Jesus. And then Jesus says, here is my body. And here is my blood. And you are forgiven. You are delivered from hell. Eternal life is yours. 
these two erasers that I give you will erase and wash from your soul every dirty, stinking deed that you've ever done in your life. And Jesus says, as sure as you ate that bread and drank that wine, you stand before me tonight as though you have never sinned. It may be your eleventh hour or mine. This is for sinners. No angels allowed. If you're an angel, holy and perfect and righteous, don't come. No angels are allowed. They are forbidden. Only businesses. If you can come tonight and say, I've died to sin, and I've my faith in Jesus.